Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. In this first programme in the new autumn season, the hedgehog and the fox go in search of bats in the company of Tessa Laird. Tessa, who teaches at the Victorian College of the Arts, University of Melbourne, began painting these creatures as a student after encountering the bats of Australia, which is a much richer variety of them than her native New Zealand. Other bat-related projects followed, the latest of which is a book entitled Bat in the animal series published by Reaction Books. As with all the volumes in this series, the reader learns not only about the natural history of the animals, but also humans' relationship with them across a wide variety of historical and cultural contexts. In China, the bat's name is a homophone for luck, so it's often depicted as a symbol of good fortune. But bats, it's fair to say, have had a pretty bad press throughout much of human history, associated as they are with night, stealth, unpredictability, madness, disease, and of course, vampirism. As you'll hear, the situation may now be changing as images of cuddly baby bats proliferate on social media. But for some endangered species, it's too little, too late. Tessa writes too about subtler manifestations of bat iconography. Bats recur in art as symbols of identity and indigeneity across the Pacific, for example. And throughout, there's a sense that the bat makes us uncomfortable as an uncanny reminder of ourselves. Tessa quotes one writer who refers to bats as weirdly altered alter egos of humans, the mammalian stalactites to the human stalagmite. And another finds in the bat an echo, if you'll pardon the term, of how we are when we are at our most crowded, noisy and irritating. Tessa refers to a feeling of betweenness, that bats produce in us. So when she spoke to me recently from her home in Sydney, I began by asking her to tell me more about this. Well, I suppose again and again, what came up was often this idea that the bat ought to fit in the category of birds because it's a flying thing and it's clearly not an insect. It's perhaps closer to the bird, but it's not a bird because it looks much more like Um, a rodent, you know, a small mammal. And the fact that, you know, a mammal could have wings, I think it has these kind of far-reaching, it's almost a metaphysical conundrum because it comes from the same um, class as us, 
and we don't have wings and nothing else in the class does have wings and therefore there's something wrong with it. It shouldn't be. It's, it's a sort of evolutionary accident. And I think there's something peculiar about the hairlessness of the wings and the featherlessness of the wings that really revolts people. I'm not sure why, because there's this kind of um, sense that if a human form was ever to be winged, all the portrayals across different cultures and throughout history show a uh, human form sprouting these wonderful, lustrous, feathery bird wings. And I think, well, that's a bit silly because if we ever were to sprout wings, being mammals and not having any relationship to birds, we wouldn't have feathered wings. We'd have leathery, bony wings and we'd be able to sort of wrap it, wrap them around ourselves. And so I think there's a, there's a sort of a terror and a horror in the bat, partly because there's something about us that's similar to it. We can see ourselves in the bat, but we don't like what we see. And I think as well, um, it's very clear for example, in the book, when the photographer Tim Flack or Flatch, I'm not sure uh, how to say his name, but when he um, turns bats the other way around, they're very easily anthropomorphized. And it's because they appear to be walking on two legs. Because they hang from two legs, if you turn them upside down, they appear to be bipeds. And they're, they're also one of the few mammals with only two breasts. So they have the kind of the basic sort of structure of a human. And I think it's very scary when we look at that, but we see it as with these sort of massive outstretched wings. There's something really creepy about that. Whereas primates, other, you know, the, the great apes and, and monkeys there's a lot of similarity between us and them, but the usual feelings they inspire are ones of, of, of affection and, and sympathy and identification. Mm-hmm. The bat, as you're saying, is like us in, in some ways, but just, just different enough to be troubling. You know, mm-hmm. the flight, the hairlessness, mm-hmm. the fact they come out at night. The, you, know, you also mentioned the, the, the fact, you know, you, you're saying that the eagle soars above mm-hmm. and it's, you know, you can see it and it's majestic or whatever. Or monitoring, um, whereas the bat is is constantly changing direction. Mm-hmm. It's, it's darting. It's it's unpredictable. One minute it's there, and the next minute it's gone. Mm-hmm. All those things are unsettling, aren't they? Mm, definitely. And that flittery, fluttery thing is a big part, I think, of what has put bats in the category of the mad of madness and and mental instability because they're seen to be sort of metaphoric for. Uh, changeable and um, un, unsound thoughts. And I guess the other thing we, we, we have to deal with is the myth that bats are perpetually getting entangled in people's hair and the other myth, which I guess is based partly on fact, of the blood-sucking bat. But in fact, as you point out in the book, blood-sucking bats are a tiny, tiny minority of, of all the bat species. Mm. 
Can you can you say a little bit about how, what part you think those things have played in the sort of mythology and the the the, the reaction we we have towards them? Because I I didn't realize I hadn't really thought about the fact that um, vampire bats hadn't been discovered by Western civilization until European civilization until really comparatively recently. You know, it's a couple of centuries ago, I guess. Yes. Um, so first of all, about the hair thing. I mean. It's funny how many different um, myths came up when I was researching that involved hair or lack of hair in some way. And I think that has to do with the fact that the bat is both hairy and bald at the same time. And it's funny the way um, the French word for bat is bald mouse. And you sort of think, but that's odd because they're not bald, but the wings, I suppose, you could say are bald. And they exemplify anxiety both about hairiness and baldness simultaneously and have been used for for cures for both conditions. And the whole thing about bats getting tangled in people's hair is so strange how widespread it is given that virtually nobody on record has actually had it happen. And I make a quote in the book um, from Tim Pearson, who's a an Australian bat conservationist, and he said, my God, I wish it were that simple because, you know, he sets up, he has to set up elaborate bat traps in order to do his research. And he said, if it was that simple, I'd just get a few people with long hair to stand outside and, you know, they'd catch bats in their hair and and I could study them but it doesn't actually ever happen. So it's it's a very strange, groundless sort of folktale. Also, um, I think it's interesting, the idea about blindness and sight. It's another thing that kept coming up in my research is that bats were associated both with blindness and visual acuity, and probably for understandable reasons. You know, the bat may bumble about in in daylight or may appear to be darting erratically, but it's actually got incredibly attuned senses and can navigate exceptionally well, which I think is um, partly why in China, of course, they were recognized as being um, an emblem of good vision. If you ate bats and so on, you would see better. But about the blood sucking, it's... (laughs) I can't sort of lay the entire blame um, upon Bram Stoker, but he really does seem to have been quite pivotal in tying together the information that was coming through from explorers, European explorers in South America, and then also Darwin, who actually saw a vampire bat at work on a horse. Tying that together with old... European vampire myths, which didn't actually feature bats, but did feature shape-shifting, undead kind of people, if you could call them that, who did have the capacity to turn into other animals, but the bat was never one that was listed. And he somehow fused this idea, because of the the old um, tales, the old vampire tales of Europe, the explorers said, oh, that bat sucking blood, it's a bit like the old vampire tales of Europe, you know, the old blood-sucking walking dead. Let's call them vampire bats. And then Stoker takes that idea, creates this kind of supervillain, 
And the rest is history. We from now on forever associate vampires with bats and bats with blood sucking. And it's a very unfortunate, although very, very powerful and, and, and kind of genius uh, work and genius maneuver on Stoker's part too, because he was really tapping into something and he knew it. But it's been very unfortunate for bats, I think, ever since. You mentioned in, in Dracula, the novel, you know, it's, it's often been pointed out there's a sort of fear of contamination from the East, something coming in and actually getting into the bloodstream. And I guess the modern day sort of correlative of that is fear about infection, you know, seeing bats as a vector for disease. And from the book, you point out that they often get blamed wrongly or hastily for being, for being the cause of, of, of viral infections, for example, like, like Ebola. Yes, absolutely. So the last big outbreak of Ebola almost instantaneously was pinpointed on a group of bats. But then it seemed as though the reports couldn't quite fix on that group of bats. So they said, well, maybe it was these little insect eaters that the children were playing with, or maybe it was the fruit bats that the men were hunting in the in the village across the way. But none of these were actually in the end proven. And unfortunately, the headlines went out globally saying um, this was the cause. And even now, they're still struggling to find, to, to pinpoint the exact cause. And so bats have already got a bad rap um, in that case. And they do frequently get associated with outbreaks of zoonotic diseases. And it's a really tricky area because... I don't think we want reprisal killings and we don't want people to unfairly uh, associate bats with things that they haven't been um, responsible for. But at the same time, we don't want to ignore the fact that they may be harboring specific diseases or there may be reservoirs of diseases that humans haven't been exposed to yet and don't have any immunities to. But I think one of the important things to remember is that bats do have immunities to a range of things that we don't, and they are actually immunity machines. They live incredibly long for an animal of their size, and it seems as though they're able to fight off infections very, very well. And so perhaps they do hold some keys to um, human immunities that we could benefit from. So rather than pointing the finger at bats and saying these are the, this is the source of all evil, it may actually be the opposite. It may be the source of some amazing cures and some amazing um, prophylactics, <laughs> if that's the right word. There are many amazing things um, in your book, Tessa. I think the most amazing, rather horrifying at the same time, is the X-ray incendiary bat bombs that were planned in World War II? It's so amazing. I thought you. I thought you must have made this up. This cannot be true. It's like the the the, the wildest fringe of sci-fi. Can you can you explain what 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 it was? Because it just it seems incredible. Right. Well, apparently it's all true. I read um, an autobiography by one of the people involved in this project. So. It was called Project X-Ray, and basically an enterprising dentist called Doc Adams was kind of fancied himself a bit of a polymath. He 
was well aware that Texas has an abundance of bats living in caves. Uh, we're talking in the millions. And he hatched this bizarre idea that if little incendiary devices could be strapped to these bats and they could be dropped over Japan, they would all kind of come down and find a roost in the eaves of Japanese architecture, which um, you know we know famously is very flammable. And Japan would be brought to its knees. This was his great plan. And he had a connection. He knew Eleanor Roosevelt. So he was able to um, get the president to read his proposal. And apparently the green light was given, the funding, the finance was given, and several years were spent trying to perfect this bat bomb. And there were a lot of accidents. A lot of bats lost their lives, and apparently the whole airstrip was set on fire at one point. And the remarkable thing about it was that this was going to go ahead until a different project, which was the invention of the atom bomb, became viable. And as soon as that was given the green light, the project X-ray was mothballed and there was no need for it. But it is a crazy story and apparently a true one. You've got a lovely quote from Doc Adams in the book where he's basically pouring scorn on the atomic bomb and saying, why are they following this harebrained plan when we've got this surefire bat bomb, you know, in the works. Exactly, because I think for them, they just thought the bat is small enough. Now an atom, that's ridiculous. How can you make a bomb out of an atom? Um, And of course, I mean, we all know how it ended and it's such a sad tale because, yeah, it ended in, in such tragedy for the people of Japan. The author of the book, I cannot remember his name, he kind of says that um, he thought that the bat bomb would have actually been a more humane option, not for the bats, of course, but for the people of Japan. So, And I sort of think it's a funny to think if perhaps, you know, the atom bomb had never got off the ground and maybe we'd all be, maybe the Cold War would have been about stockpiling bats, you know, who's got the biggest stockpile of bats? And we wouldn't have the iconography of the mushroom cloud. We have the bat wings hovering. hovering Absolutely. And then bats would have an even worse reputation than they do. So not, not good for the bats in any case. If that's the most bizarre story in the book, I guess the saddest one is about a species of bat on Christmas Island. And that kind of points towards a, a really serious problem, you, a, a more general problem for bat populations. I think you say 25% of bat populations are um, threatened. So can you, can you tell me about the Christmas Island uh, bat that you, you show in the book? Okay, so the Christmas Island pipistrelli was a bat which became extinct only a few years ago. It was a very, very sad situation where... Um, Christmas Island is an Australian territory and due to the introduction of particular snakes and other predators, a lot of the local fauna was suffering and conservationists knew that the Christmas Island pipistrelli was really struggling and they were petitioning the Australian government to take action and to allow them to go in and um, set up some intensive breeding programs and so on. 
and the funding just didn't come through. And I think the scientists involved kind of kept pushing for it and pushing for it, and then it was too late. And by the time they were kind of given any funding, they got to the island, and basically there were less than a handful left. And it got to the point where they literally were recording the echolocation call of the very last bat of that species, and then it was gone. And so the call was archived by Bat Conservation International, and you could listen to it on the internet, and they, they labelled it, the sound. this is the sound of extinction. I think that it was really traumatic for the scientists involved because to be around something we hear about all the time, we hear about this, we're in the sixth mass extinction event, and this many species are going extinct every year, but to actually be faced with a species, the very last of a species, it's such a difficult and profound, profoundly sad experience. So I think there's a lot to be learned from that, but whether or not we can move forward and do something about all the bats and all the other creatures that are in peril, I don't know. There's a very poignant picture in the book of little inverted crossies mm. hanging from trees, mm. uh, and that's in Australia, and that's to record sites where, where bats have been shot. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so it's surprising, but in Australia, a lot of bats aren't safe because even though some of them, such as the grey-headed flying fox, are actually protected species and are actually recognised as being threatened. They also are fruit eaters, and so fruit farmers see them as pests. And fruit farmers can actually apply for a shooting permit in some states because um, they're allowed to protect their crops the way they see fit. And there's been a lot of work done to show that it's actually far more effective to net your fruit correctly rather than shoot randomly and have to be a very good shot and have to actually kill the animal, although it's been proven as well that often they don't get killed, they just get wounded and maimed and then die a really horrible lingering death, and often that they are... Um, they're nursing mothers that are flying with pups attached to them. And so it's kind of a horrible, messy business. And bat advocates around Australia are saying, look, there's no need to shoot flying foxes when there are perfectly ethical ways of, or humane ways of uh, protecting your fruit trees. And bats, flying foxes in particular, already die enough from other causes such as heat waves barbed wire fences, electrocution. There's a whole number of perils for flying foxes. And so there's a burgeoning field of, of bat carers, generally middle-aged women perhaps that their families have left, and they end up sort of nursing these orphan bats whose, whose mothers have either been electrocuted, shot, or have died in a heat wave. So these little baby flying foxes are swaddled, 
and they're given dummies to suck and they're fed fruit juice and then they kind of graduate onto big pieces, chunks of fruit. Um, and they're extremely beguiling and um, you can see these videos on YouTube of these little baby bats and I think once people have seen these it's very hard to not fall in love with bats and to continue to see them as kind of evil or creepy you really start to see their endearing qualities up close. Well I wanted to ask you about that do you think we talked about this a demonic um depictions of bats that have prevailed in Western society for centuries. But do you actually think things like social media and everybody having a, a, a camera phone in their pocket, is that is that actually making a significant difference in how bats are perceived? Because if they're not hanging in some, some dripping cave, but you can see them swaddled and, you know, eating a bit of fruit or something, that does actually begin to change people's image, doesn't it? I think so. And I am the least social media person there is, but I really have to say that the the bat baby videos and the kinds of things that people tell me are being posted on Facebook, I don't actually know firsthand, but I really do think the perception of bats is changing thanks to that. They are starting to be seen as cute. They're starting to be seen as endearing and fun. And for example, a while back there was a video again of that idea of flipping the bats upside down. And, and there was some, I think they were horseshoe bats. They were hanging upside down. Sorry, when I say upside down, I sort of mean right way up. For right way up, yes. <laughs> so yes. They, they inverted the way the bat naturally hangs. So they looked like they were standing upright and it looked like they were doing a little dance. And of course that was shared throughout social media and people sort of saying, oh, aren't they cute? And that kind of thing I think does help. And I, I think as well, there's been a lot of um, education aimed at, at kids. And I think kids these days are getting the idea that bats are actually really good for the environment and that bats are not to be feared, and perhaps they can then sort of influence their parents a little bit more. I also think that even though in general the spread of American culture is kind of, you know, the scourge of the earth, um, the fact that Halloween has now become kind of cool, a cool thing to do, even outside of America, it means that imagery of bats looking cute because they're aimed at kids rather than adults and and the whole of you know the whole thing's being commodified so you have all these kinds of decorations with cute little bats with sort of bug eyes um, not to be feared but something that you would want to either dress up as or you would want to have um, decorating your house or you would want to make cute little bat cookies or whatever you wanted to do I think it is changing the way we perceive the animal. And I think that's a positive. And it's just a question of whether whether that is enough to to affect genuine change. And of course it's not an it's not an isolated problem, is it? It's it's one of a an interconnected suite of problems mm -hmm. about environment and, and and lifestyle. That is true. And then in that sense, as much as I love Bat Conservation International, I feel that by focusing on bats only, we often 
lose sight of some of the bigger problems. And the bigger problems are things like climate change and the loss of habitat. And these things, they really need a kind of a holistic approach. Let's conclude, Tessa, with what sounds to me like an astonishing experience you had while you were researching the book, which is visiting a cave called Brecken Cave in Texas. That sounds like the sort of the full the full awe and majesty of the bat world before your eyes. Can you can you tell me what that experience was like for you? It's overwhelming because you hear about it and you hear about the endless stream of bats and you hear about how many there are and there are literally millions. Um, I've heard twenty million. I've even heard forty million. And when you get there, you sort of see that this cave actually looks very small. I mean, the mouth of the cave is not big. And you sort of think, okay, well, there can't be that many bats in there. (laughs) But they're very little bats. There's something strange about when you see that many of them. It's, it's, It's almost hallucinatory, and you can't quite put your finger on what you're seeing because they start to form patterns. And I kept thinking, it's like insects. And then I kept thinking, no, it's like birds. And thinking, it's like waves on, the, on, on sand. And then it would sort of turn into something else. And it would keep sort of morphing and shifting. And, and then all that time you think, oh, God, it's still going and it's still going and it's still going. And so it's really just a wonderful thing to experience. And I think seeing it, I feel so lucky to have seen it. And I think about those great migrations that um, used to exist, such as the buffalo and the passenger pigeon, I believe. These great migrations that used to be these great sights to behold, and they're no longer they no longer happen because the passenger pigeon was shot to extinction. And there are no great buffalo herds of the size that they used to be, so you don't get that incredible stampede. And I think even the monarchs are in trouble, the monarchs that sort of plaster everything in Mexico with orange and black in a certain season. And I feel that these, these, these epic sites are kind of on the wane and I was so lucky to have seen Bracken Cave when I did and I just really, really hope that it continues to be, to be healthy and Bat Conservation International um, have bought the land and they own it and they're doing a wonderful job of keeping developers out of the area and one can only hope that it continues for a long time to come. I was talking to Tessa Laird about her book, Bat, in the Animal series, published by Reaction Books and Paperback. You can find out more about it and check out the whole amazing series at reactionbooks.co.uk. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Mixcloud and Stitcher. You can catch up on any interviews you've missed, and, if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.